0: Good morning. Give me a minute here to get all my kachibachi set up, which is Belizean for junk. I think Carl is right. It's really not too late in the new year to consider resolutions, is it? Um, mine are also usually about health, mental health, and physical health. Um, maybe differently motivated. Uh, I don't plan on becoming a superstar sports athlete. Uh, my reserva- my reservations, yes, that too. Resolutions at this point are more about risk management. Uh, in, my, in my old age here, um, yeah, I'm very much aware of the common diseases that tend to hit Americans. I'm aware of my American lifestyle my American diet, I'm aware of family genetics and predispositions. I can pretty much tell you how I'm going to go, but anyhow. I wonder though, how many of us, speaking of risk management, and risk assessment, ever stop to think about the risks associated with being wealthy, at which point I'm sure some of you are saying, I don't need to worry about that because I'm not wealthy. Well, you know, compared to your colleagues, your neighbors, people sitting next to you, that's one thing. But let's put it in a global perspective. By looking at a little chart, um, first correction it is a 2022 report, um, not 2002. Uh, Craig assures me I've got mean and medium mixed up. Whatever, I've also asked Lee not to correct me, please. <laughs> Statistics, as he says, you know, are, are used to lie, but let me, let, me, let me jar us a little bit anyhow. According to this report, half, more than half, 53% of the world's adults have a wealth of under 10,000 US dollars. And by wealth, I'm not talking just salary. I'm talking about your home, your vehicles, your retirement plans, maybe expensive technology, jewelry, inheritance, um, investments, the total package, over half the world's adults have less than 10,000 U.S. dollars. Another third of the world's adults have between 10,000 and 100,000 U.S. dollars in total wealth. According to the Swiss report, the average US adult has a half a million in total wealth, which is absolutely startling, but then you think, if you own a home in the south metro area, you're getting there. Now add on, the vehicles, the retirement funds, the investments, um, certain possessions, It's, it's somewhat believable. And another way of looking at it is line every American up from the very poorest to the very richest. The one in the middle would have a wealth of about $93,000. That's just about at that upper threshold there. No matter whether you think of it by the statistics or just anecdotally or by looking around and comparing yourself to the rest of the world, Americans are wealthy. We're wealthy folks. And so we have risks that must be managed and assessed because of our riches. But it just doesn't occur to us often to think about it, does it? Well, we're gonna look at a story today in scripture about a man who is jarred into thinking about his wealth and its management by Jesus. It's going to be the story of in Luke chapter 18 of the rich young ruler which is also in Matthew and Mark. So as we start, um, can we pray about this? Father, would you give us, please, today, ears to hear you, a courage and bravery to set aside what we have been told by our culture and what we have told ourselves about our wealth and our status, Would you give us courage to hear and be open, open hands, open palms to what you have to teach us today through your word, through this encounter Jesus had with a rich young man. Amen. And it's actually only Matthew that tells us he was a young man, and it's actually only Luke that mentions he was a ruler, but interestingly, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell us he had great wealth. He was wealthy. That's the predominant characteristic. But I picture him like coming from a prominent family, um, maybe being a civic leader. He's an up-and-comer, an influencer, and he comes to Jesus and he's asking a basic human question. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, for one thing, he hasn't been listening because Jesus has been speaking to the crowd for a while now and the story right before this one is the story of Jesus welcoming the little children and saying that to inherit eternal life demands a dependency on God and a trust in God. But he thinks he's an exception. He's special, he's different. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Good teacher. And I suspect he said, good teacher hoping that Jesus would say back to him in front of this crowd, good man, and then affirm him in his lifestyle and his interest and notice me and notice my piety in asking. But Jesus plays it differently here. Jesus says to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Implication, are you calling me God? And if you are, buddy, you better listen up because I'm about to answer your question. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your mother and father. And interestingly, Jesus doesn't directly question his worship of God in its abstract form. He questions and challenges him on his response to God's created beings, his relationships. Implication again by Jesus, you cannot really be worshiping God unless you are also caring for his people and for his creation. But still, that doesn't put the man off. (laughs) He just says, all these I have kept since I was a boy. I'm ready for him to pat himself on the back here. Jesus lets him know that to keep the commandments, especially those that have to do with relationships, are far more than just a a visible and outward and superficial and public appearing manner of behavior. To really keep the commandments requires a humility and a dependence. And this man doesn't have either of those. So then Jesus delivers his zinger in the next verse. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Oh, good, one thing. Cool, one more thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. That is not what the man expected to hear. I, and Point being, he can't follow Jesus until he releases his dependency on his wealth and the status and the reputation that it brings to him. He can outwardly acknowledge God and he can appear pious. He can even be a generous benefactor in his community and get noticed for it. But Jesus looks straight into his heart and knows that he is self-righteous, self-sufficient, self-focused, and this is not how one gets eternal life with God. Some of the commentators think that because he was told to sell everything, he must have been unusually selfish. But I don't think so. I think he was pretty ordinary for his station in life. I think he was you know, probably fairly confident going into this of his relationship with God. Just wanted that public affirmation. Maybe fairly generous benefactor in his community, pretty consistent in his religious practice. I mean, he's as good as the next guy, right? And truth be told, how many of us have comforted ourselves in saying, I'm as good as the next guy. Maybe I'm even better than the next guy. But the comparison isn't between you and me and the next guy. It's a dependency and a trust in God. Jesus calls for radical allegiance and discipleship. <clears throat> well, Luke gives him more credit than Matthew and Mark. Matthew and Mark said he turned on his heels and walked away at that point. In Luke, he just stands there. He became very sad because he was very wealthy. I think he's just stunned. I think he's just shocked. and I, One of those moments where it, it's only a moment but it seems like an eternity and life is passing in front of you in your mind. And I believe he's thinking, what about my expectations? What about my life plans? What about my family? What about my reputation? Uh, this is humiliating. I call him good teacher and he calls me out. And it embarrasses me in front of this crowd and I'm a leader in this community. And besides, I asked about God and eternal life. I didn't ask about this teacher. I didn't ask to follow him. I don't want to be like one of those ragtag, barefoot disciples. I didn't ask for that at all. This is humiliating. And while all this is going through his mind, Luke says Jesus looked at him. And Mark adds, Jesus looked at him and loved him. And then Jesus offers another hyperbolic metaphor over the top and says how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom. And maybe then it clicked on him. As we see in the next slide, maybe then he realized We cannot knowingly hold back from God and be right with him. Now, it's not for me to point the finger and say that's what you're holding back and you're holding back. It's, It's between us and God. But may I assure you, you cannot hold back from God and be right with him. Something's amiss. I cannot follow Jesus until I unclench those Fists until I release self-sufficiency and the dependency on my possessions and my wealth and my reputation and my status that go with it, I cannot be right with God or follow Jesus until my palms have just put them down. Because maybe he figured out at this point to stay wealthy requires us to do a lot of focus on ourselves. We have to take care of our possessions. We have to manage our investments. We have to do the risk assessment. It, it makes us more guarded, more self-protected instead of more generous, open-handed. We don't necessarily see the needs around us because we are busy guarding our wealth. It's subtle, but it's present in every one of us. And so I have to ask, what what am I holding back? What do I need to release? What is the last thing in the world I want Jesus to know about and claim if I want to follow him? Well, the man is still speechless, but in the next verse, we see the crowd ask the question he might have been asking himself. Those who heard this asked, who can be saved? I mean, the upstanding citizen, well-to-do, and he can't be sure what hope is there for us. And Jesus answers them by saying, what is impossible for man is possible with God. There is no way any external that I accumulate can guarantee my salvation, but in Christ, with God, anyone, regardless of wealth, can be saved. Well then, good old Peter, good old Peter just blurts out, we've left all we had to follow you. And for once, Jesus doesn't have to rebuke him. But he can actually affirm him. But it's a very interesting affirmation. What do you think of this return on investment, guys? No one, truly I tell you, Jesus said to them, no one who has left home or wives or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. Wait a second, that that should jar us a little bit. That's not kind of an equal exchange in my mind. Give up personal wealth and I get relationships. Oh, they're messy. That is not what I asked for. Is that really a return on investment that we're looking for or willing to exchange in favor of? Now, I don't doubt there are some here who have left everything to follow Jesus. But I think most of us, absolutely include myself in this, have done some pretty interesting mental gymnastics in order to defend maintaining my wealth and my lifestyle as is. Let me walk us through three of these excuses here. The first one, I think, is a faulty theology. And and bear with me, if you've been dozing off, can you just wake up for a minute because you're going to have to follow four steps here. This is the way we often think. <clears throat> All good gifts around us have come from heaven above. Okay, that's a hymn. That's not in scripture. <laughs> the, well, it's similar to James, but it's not a biblical quote. And we say, "I have good gifts. God has given them to me." Maybe, unless I mean, maybe you defrauded someone. Maybe you stole them. I don't know. God blesses those who please Him. Well, yes, again, but again. There's no promise of material benefits for those who please him. That would be the, that would be the prosperity gospel. That would be health and wealth. We're, we're a bit more mature than that, I think. But God blesses those who please him, so I must be pleasing to God because I'm blessed. Well, again, no. That's not logical theology. You could have those good gifts because you won the lottery, because you inherited them, because of the privilege of having been born in a developed country with a working economy. You could be blessed because of social inequalities that have privileged you over other people. And as I said, you could be blessed because you're a criminal. Don't call it a blessing if you are a criminal, if you defrauded somebody. Yes, God blesses those who please him, but Jesus has just said that return on investment is a relational one primarily. You can't assume if you're wealthy that God is pleased with you. It could be the opposite. And again, I can't point a finger and say you and you and you, But we have to consider what's the origin of my wealth and does the manner in which I received it please God? Or is it of my own self-doing? I think the second thing that causes us to defend our wealth is a false humility. I don't want to be a burden to anybody. I don't want to ask anybody to do for me it sounds noble, but it's actually because we dread the indignity and the shame of being, being beholden to somebody else. You know, we say, I, I, I'm not gonna ask my neighbor to borrow his ladder because I can take care of this myself, I can afford my own ladder, but sometimes isn't it because we don't wanna run the risk of that neighbor coming to us and saying, could I borrow something? It could be very inconvenient. It could be a prized possession. We posture ourselves as being very humble. I don't want to be dependent on anybody. I'll take care of myself, pull myself up by my own bootstraps. It's the American way. But sometimes, sometimes it's not a humility. It's a pride. It's a self-protection instead of a vulnerability. And it's an excuse for us to defend being wealthy rather than generous. And I think the third thing we sometimes do, and I've been told this is spelled wrong, sorry, fictitious concern for good stewardship. I have a book. It's an old one. It's from 1989, ancient, by Bob Lupton, Robert Lupton, called Theirs is the Kingdom. And in the late 80s, he, as a psychiatrist, moved his family into inner city Atlanta, and he was going to minister to the poor, He felt very good about himself for that. Good man, that Bob Lupton. And this is a book of little vignettes, fun to read. And he talks about, in one vignette, Mrs. Smith. She's 66, developmentally disabled, dangerously overweight, twice a great-grandmother, devoted member of our church, and he's quite proud that Mrs. Smith calls him a friend. She wants to sit close to me in every church service, even though she smells of stale sweat and excrement. Um, She makes me feel a little special. You see her internal plumbing doesn't work as well as it used to. And when she kisses me on the cheek, she leaves tobacco smears from her chewing tobacco. But I'm pleased to have Mrs. Smith by my side. But the dilemma comes when Mrs. Smith decides to join their home group. And he knows Mrs. Smith is gonna make a beeline for his favorite corduroy recliner. And with that stale smell of sweat and excrement, that recliner is gonna get ruined. Stewardship. He writes, why should it be such a struggle to decide which is more godly? To welcome Mrs. Smith to my home and my corduroy recliner? Or to preserve the homey aroma of my sanctuary after a hard day of ministry and to get extra years of service from my furniture it's a question of stewardship every vignette he wrestles with something like that and I think we need to admit that sometimes we wrestle too sometimes we don't even want to admit there's a second side to the story and as a church I believe we need to wrestle with this too corporately We we have a lot of resources. Are we being generous in global and local missions? Are we being generous with the use of the building? Because it would be easy to say, you know, the carpet could get ruined and expenses for janitorial services could go up and I mean that pristine new kitchen we've got. Do we, do we really, good stewardship. And we need to wrestle with the tension of this concern for good stewardship. And maybe that's one of the reasons Jesus put it in terms of personal wealth and relationships. Which value should predominate? Well, after all those downers, maybe we should talk a little bit about what we can do to mitigate the risk we have of being wealthy, folks. bear with I'll give you some Latin free today find our your worth my worth find our worth in the image of God the imago Dei you know the the consumer market tells us we have to create our image Um, on social media with our selfies um, with our stylish clothes with our home decor people we are seen with technology latest upgrade you know, create your image because your image creates your worth. And that is just absolutely utter rubbish, especially for us as believers who know that the image of God is planted in each and every one of us. And that image, not earned, but innate within us, as created beings, created by God, that is the source of our worth. So we can stop believing the market that we have to compete to prove our worth. Good clothes aren't going to make me any more valuable, and rags are not going to devalue me a bit. And this idea of the image of God in every creature, every person ever created, helps us in our relationships, too. Because, you know, like Lupton dealing with Mrs. Smith, we have no reason to devalue those who are not as productive, not as bright, not as desirable, not as lovely. Knowing the image of God is in every single person can increase our capacity to love the unlovely and desire their well-being as persons, and to even derive pleasure from being able to assist them in a in attaining their well-being. This rich young man was told, sell all you have and give to the poor. And the challenge for us today is to remember that the image of God comes before anybody has a relationship with Christ. Even if they flat outright reject them, they are as worthy as the most ardent believer give to the poor the undeserving, the irreligious, the burdensome, the drain on society, the addicted, the bothering you at the intersections, chronic poor, no less value than any one of us in this room because of the innate image of God in every creature another way to deal with managing our mouth, I think our our wealth and our mouth prioritize community over individuality remember Jesus said no one who has left wife or mother or father or brothers or sisters or homes or families um, Mark adds fields and persecutions will fail to receive many times as much in this present age but it, it Seriously, it is hard to believe that. I mean, we are so raised on Western individualism and do it yourself, take care of yourself, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Uh, You know, we're raised on an idea of if I earned it, I deserve it and I can do what I want with it. It's my wealth. But this is, in the history of mankind, a thought that's really only a couple centuries old, this extreme individualism, and it's still not a a philosophy or worldview of many, many communal cultures today where people have to be more dependent on each other. Where 53% of the world's adults have a wealth of under $10,000 a year, you bet they have to help one another out. And I believe that Jesus wants to teach us, contra what our culture teaches us, that wealth is not our privilege, wealth is our responsibility. Given wealth as a resource by God, I'm given the responsibility to consider the welfare and well being of my community. It's not, I earned it, I deserve it, it's mine. Rather than saying what's in it for me when a deal comes along, we need to be saying what's in me for others? What skill, gift, monetary gift? What can I share with others so we're all made better? And in a church setting, what's in us for others? What can Centennial Covenant Church offer the community? and our brothers and sisters around the world. Because Jesus promised family, and we're called brothers and sisters in Christ. If our brothers and sisters are in need around the world, what can we offer? Wealth is not our privilege to hoard. It is our privilege to share, our responsibility to share. And thirdly, I think, notice the the similarity between the words discipline and disciple. A disciple disciplines their desires because desires are real. God created us with desires. And oh, how well the market knows that. The market is well aware of the fact that there's this thing neurologically in our brains called dopamine. And when you have a, an experience or something new or a possession or you know, the thrill of the hunt, that dopamine kicks in. And so shopping is indeed a feel-good experience. Now what you're shopping for might make it more feel-good or more boring, but shopping, acquiring, getting, experiencing, is a feel-good experience. Our brain is hardwired for that. The trouble is, it's a very short-acting burst of dopamine and a very addictive burst of dopamine. So we get that product, or we have that experience, and it feels great, and then that thing becomes a burden, something else cluttering up the house, out of style, so last year, and we need another burst of dopamine, so we do it again. Now we were created for desire, with desire. But even as Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in God. We are created with desire for God. But just like trying to change your diet from junk food to healthy food, it's not a single decision and it doesn't happen automatically overnight. Because your brain wants that dopamine burst. And so we have to discipline our desires. We have to realize that it takes thought and intention to stop giving into the impulse and to choose wisely what we do with our wealth. Stanley Hauerwas suggests that discipleship in a consumer culture is quote, quite simply extended training in being dispossessed Discipleship in a consumer culture is quite simply extended training in being dispossessed. Giving up the dependency on the things, on the technology, on the vehicles, on the retirement plan, on the stuff. Training in being dispossessed in order to focus, be present as we build a relationship with God and a character of generosity and compassion. Well, the man's immediate question, that rich young ruler, his first question, good good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And one commentator put it this way, to receive the treasure he wants, he has to give up the treasure he has. And that is just a thought for us all to go home with. What treasure do I have? You know, what's... Carl put it earlier, what's behind the veil that I wish Jesus didn't see? What treasure do I have to reconsider my relationship with? January 8th was the 65th anniversary of the death of missionary Jim Elliot at the hands of indigenous Indians in Ecuador. Many of us know that story, how Jim Elliot and his four friends had made contact with the Indians, thought they had established a safe relationship, went in on one visit, and the five of them were killed. Jim Elliott, a couple years before that, had written in his diary while at Wheaton College. <clears throat> Later, this quote was kind of made famous by his wife, who wrote about him. He wrote, she wrote, he wrote, and she recorded it. He is no fool. Who gives what he cannot keep to keep what he cannot lose. Well known to many of us. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to keep what he cannot lose. So my prayer today is that, well, let me pray it. Pray with me and let me tell God what our prayer is for us. Father as I prayed at the beginning of these words would you give us the courage to assess the courage to think about how we got our wealth what we are doing to keep our wealth and what we should do with our wealth would you touch each one who has the courage to ask these questions give affirmation like you gave Peter give a Kick to those like the rich young ruler. Give us the courage to allow you to do your work in us, I pray. Amen.